but he's on the move through all of this. And he continues, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, these soldiers were the most elite soldiers that the Roman Empire trained. And the reason that Paul has had the access to them and been able to reach them is because as, as part of his house arrest, his imprisonment, he would have been chained to one of these guards every moment of every day. They would have worked in four-hour shifts and they would have been chained to Paul. And can you imagine what Paul was like when they turned up and were chained to him? Here for the next four hours, are you? <laughs> we can fill four hours. Have you ever heard of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Oh, you haven't. Right, let's get to work. He had a captive audience. And Paul made sure they knew about Jesus. But these were not just the best soldiers. These were Caesar's personal bodyguards. These were the, the emperor of Rome's men his trusted circle, his inner influences, the people that he entrusted and worked with. So these were the people who had most to lose if they accepted the gospel. These were the people who had most buy-in to the world's view at that time. And they're not just hearing the gospel, but the gospel is advancing among them. There is fruit among some of these people who you'd expect to have the hardest of hearts. I mean, even just on its surface level, this is encouraging to us. We all have people in our lives, don't we, who we think, surely the gospel could never change them. Surely they would never be responsive to the message of Jesus. And yet here it is, starting to make inroads in the hardest of hearts. All we have to do is just chain ourselves to people for four hours. <laughs> that is not the application. But the Roman authorities here had locked Paul up because he was a threat. This movement of Jesus was something they wanted to stop in its tracks. They wanted to come down hard on this. And they wanted to contain this message. Stop it at source. Literally chain up the gospel. And in their attempt to wipe it out, all that had happened was that, is there something I need to do? No, thumbs up, keep going. All that had happened in their attempt to chain up the gospel was that rather than the gospel advancing out there on the fringes of the Roman Empire, out there in colonies, all that had happened is the gospel had come right into the heart of the empire, right into Rome itself, right into the upper echelons of power, right into Caesar's household, and was starting to make inroads right there. I mean, you couldn't have written it or planned it better. The gospel making progress right in the heart of the empire. And yet, Paul says, no, no, no but there's more. In verse 14, he says, this isn't just me. It's not just what's happening through me, but that most of the church in Rome has become confident in the Lord. That through seeing Peter, Paul's imprisonment, they have seen what's happened in the imperial guard. They've seen Paul in action, and suddenly they are starting to get confident in God all over again. They're starting to believe all over again. They're starting to have faith all over again, and it leads to them 
speaking words without fear. God is moving in his church again, and they've got the bit between their teeth, and they're taking the gospel out. Paul wants the Philippian church here to see and to grasp this gospel, this gospel that they have is a gospel that really moves. It makes progress. It advances. It moves. It can grip the heart of the most unlikely person. And it can set ablaze the hearts of his church all over again. In just a moment, it can change. Don't you long to see the gospel advance like this in Manchester? Wouldn't you love to see it? Wouldn't you love it to see, to see the gospel moving in the upper echelons of power, right through to the everyday person on the street, right down to the lowest and most forgotten of those in society? Wouldn't you see the power of the gospel? Wouldn't you love to see it moving in your circles? All of us have that person who we just long to see saved. Maybe it's a, a housemate that gives you stick for going to church or a family member that just doesn't seem to understand or a co-worker that asks so many questions that never seem to really go anywhere. Wouldn't you love, don't you long for them to be sat at the table with you, sharing communion, breaking bread, stood next to you, hands in the air in teary-eyed worship? Don't you long for it? I mean, to be honest, it's the only reason we are here as a church, to see the gospel advance. It's the reason we planted three years ago. It's the reason that we keep going is because we long to see the advance of the gospel in Manchester, among those that don't yet know him, among those that are far from him, and in his church, for us to know the gospel and to experience the gospel. For me, I long for it for myself. And really, it's just very selfish that we've got this. I just want to see the gospel move in my own heart. To see him set me ablaze. And here we see we can have genuine hope. This is a gospel that loves to move in hearts. Those that know him, those that don't. But this progress and this advance, it only comes through chains. The first half of the passage, Paul mentions his imprisonment. Literally in the Greek, uh, it's the word chains. Three times he mentions it. Repeatedly, he's wanting to show this church. There is this unstoppable gospel power, but it only comes about through bondage and chains. The imperial guard were only reached because Paul was in chains. The church only had confidence in the Lord because they were chained up. That through chains that look like defeat, they look like suffering, they feel like weakness, they feel like and look for Paul like the end. Through that hindrance comes the resurrection life of the gospel. Only through that. To this church in Philippi that's suffering, that's weak, that is perhaps starting to panic and just wonder, is this the end? Paul just holds up his chains and says, this is not the end. This is how the gospel advances. This is how God builds his church. This is how the kingdom moves on through weak people, utterly bound in chains, looking totally hopeless. Then the gospel power comes forth. Through weak 
people who embrace the humiliation, perhaps, and the rejection of talking to their housemates or new flatmates of, oh, I'm actually a Christian and I go to church and taking on all that comes their way because of it. Through people who hold on to ethics and values, even if it means I miss out on that promotion and then the extra money and the job satisfaction and the bigger house, all because I just will not compromise. It comes through a church that is willing to let go of being seen as cool or relevant in the wider society and is willing to look weak and powerless in the eyes of society at large. That when the church appears weak and powerless, it embodies the gospel itself. The gospel where it was only through humiliation, only through shame and suffering of the cross that then the resurrection life sprang forth. And so as exhilarating as the idea of advance and progress sounds, it's hard. There's no denying that it's painful and it's costly. And in fact, Paul goes on to relate another situation that's difficult for him in verses 15 through to 18. He talks of some other believers that, that know him and that he knows, probably in the church in Rome that have started preaching the gospel. So their their content is good, their doctrine is sound, but their motives are all over the place. They're self-ambitious. They're looking to, they're envious of Paul. And the worst thing is that they were thinking to afflict me, Paul says. And we don't quite know what's going on. The commentators have an absolute field day on this passage, just trying to like a million different conjectures and theories as to exactly what might have been happening. I don't think it's really too important for us to nail down the total details. I think the important thing is that we see Paul is in prison, and it seems like they have seen, oh, Paul is now in prison. Hello, opportunity to step into the void that Paul left. And that can look good for me. And maybe I could preach the gospel in a way like Paul did. And people will look to me and like me as much as they liked Paul. And that something is happening where they are making Paul suffer because of what they are doing. And probably trying to burn Paul's reputation in the process. This is painful for Paul as he faces it. And yet, in this deeply painful moment that's going on here through the chains that he was held in, he's not just seeing progress and advance of the gospel. He's also experiencing joy. You might have noticed it when we first read the passage, verse 18. What then? After telling that story, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, just in case we had missed it the first time. And what is remarkable, actually, is it's taken Paul this long to talk about how he is doing. Because typically, in a letter like this, at this stage from the passage we've read out, the person would be talking about their own circumstances in this kind of letter of friendship style. And so he'd be talking about, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's happening. For someone in prison, you'd expect them to be bemoaning their circumstances. The food is terrible. 
so cold in here. The room service is dreadful. You don't want to know about the Wi-Fi. They've got a data cap on, so I can only watch seven hours of Netflix a day. Like, this is dreadful, barely coping. But Paul, all we have got from him so far is gospel, Christ, Lord, gospel, Christ, Lord. All he wants to talk about is God and the gospel. And when he finally does get around to talking about, no, no, but Paul, how are you actually doing in prison? All he can say is, I know joy. I know joy. Yes, and I will rejoice. And you think, surely, has Paul got his head in the sand? Is he just total denial of everything that's going on? But no, we know he hasn't because he has just recounted all of the hardships and the difficulties, the real challenges, the pain that he is in. He's in chains. He's about to face a trial as to whether he lives or dies. And there's people that he loves trying to afflict him. And yet, as he recounts it, all he can say is, I'm just rejoicing. I know joy. And we look at this, I don't know about you, I think, how? How? If this is real, how? How do you know joy in these circumstances, a deep-seated contentment and happiness and fulfillment of life? This, the sense of the, the second time where he says, I will rejoice, is I will continue to rejoice. I know I will keep rejoicing. How do you know you will be able to keep rejoicing in these situations? And the answer is found in some of the most remarkable words that have ever been written by a follower of Jesus. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's saying that for me to live means I get Christ, but if I die, I will gain. And actually, within the Greek words, there is no verb in this. You see it on, on here. It literally is just to live, no is, just to live Christ and to die gain. And this has particular emphasis. I'm not going to speak the Greek, but you can, you can see the word Christos and you can see the word kurdos. The, the, the emphasis to live Christos, to die kurdos, emphatic power in what he's saying. And he leaves out the verb. We just sort of fill it in with is. But Paul is saying here to live Christ. That all, everything of all of life is found in Jesus Christ. He's saying if I have him, I have everything. No lack. Nothing is missing in my life. He, he leaves out the verb as if it's a kind of container for us to try and fill in with Whatever word we might have, so to live is Christ, or to live depends on Christ, or to live begins with Christ, or life to live ends with Christ. The foundation, the center, the purpose, the direction, the meaning of Paul's life was simply in the person of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we ask that, that question comes up, what is the meaning of life? Well, without being flippant or too clever or giving an annoying answer, maybe people would find it annoying, but you can literally answer it in just one word. The meaning of life is Christ in Paul's thinking. It's like he's read 
and heard Jesus' words in John chapter 10, of I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Paul has just said, all right, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word, and I am going to choose to believe that you will give me fullness of life. And so later on in the letter, he talks of how he's left everything else behind just to go after Christ and follow him. And it's like he's saying, this is my testimony of having done that. This is what life looks like. He really does give life if you pursue him. And so Paul wants as much of Jesus as he can possibly get, because that is to get as much of life as he can possibly get. And he wants it so much, he wants him so much, that he would rather die. To die, gain. That word is, is profit. It would be a profit to me if I were to die rather than go on living. And thankfully, he explains himself a little bit to us in verse 23 where he says, when thinking about living or dying, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Just let that sink in for a moment. He's saying, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. It's far better. He's saying life is sweet. Life for him at this moment is full of joy. And he knows that he's only going to get more and more joy as he gets more and more of Christ in life. And he knows that the chains can't stop him from getting more of this joy. And yet he says, I don't know what I want. I don't know if I want to live or die. He's the picture of Paul here is if I've got these two great options in front of me, and I don't know which one, in the same way that we might be picking between two dream holidays. Like I don't know whether I want to go to the Maldives for four weeks, all expenses paid, or to Antigua. And I just don't know. It's, it's, it's conflicting my soul. Just to be clear, we must be clear, Paul is not looking for a way out. He's not thinking, I, I want to die because I can't bear living. Death is good for Paul because of his absolute certainty of what lies beyond the grave for him, of where he is going. It's not actually his choice. It's, it's a hypothetical he's talking in. He, he, it's out of his hands. It's not his choice whether he lives or dies. But this is how he thinks about death. When his time comes, I know where I'm going. I'm going to be, as he says, verse 23, with Christ. And this is uh, the great irony, I think, of this passage is that re Paul repeatedly talks about how the, he is chained up and he is bound. And yet the way that he talks is as though he is the most free person that has ever lived. The, his manner is just like, I don't have a care in the world. If I live, I'll just go, joy, 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 joy. If I die... Well, I'll get to be with Christ, and that is joy unending. And he just sounds free. Even in verses 19 through to 20, where he's leading up to this, this verse 21 that we looked at, where the, his, his fate, his life is in another person's hands. He's awaiting a decision from someone else as to whether he lives or dies. You think he must be experiencing maximum turmoil, conflict, mental trauma, what are they going to do to me? Will I be alive in two weeks' time? What's going to happen to all the churches, all the people that I love? And yet in this context, he says, I know things are going to turn out well for me. 
the only thing that is on his radar is I just want to make sure that through it all, I honor Christ. And what do I have to fear? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, I don't know about this, you, but I read this. I mean, who is this man? Look at his confidence, his assurance, his joy, his total freedom from any fear, any anxiety, any inner turmoil. I don't know about you, but I see this and I think this is what I long for. I want to be like this man. I want to have no, just to be as relaxed and joyful and content as this man. And it all comes from directing his life to Christ. And I think it's just worth us acknowledging that we live in a time where the counter-narrative to verse 21 is so strong. That it is deeply ingrained in each and every one of us sat here today that happiness and joy and life itself is not found in looking to Christ, not found in looking to anyone else, but can only be found by looking to ourself. That's what we are ingrained in the culture. That's the water that we swim in. You can be happy so long as your desires are met, so long as your needs are met. You can be happy so long as you're sexually fulfilled. You can be happy so long as you've got that killer Instagram-worthy penthouse flat in spinning fields. You can be happy so long as you get the best smash avocado on sourdough bread out there. That is where happiness is found. Or you can be happy so long as you are true to yourself. You can be happy so long as you find out and discover who you truly are and you live authentically expressing that life. These things are intuitive to us now. They're just part of these ideas, these phrases. They're just what we're used to. And so to live is Christ comes as direct opposition to that. Direct opposition to everything that we're surrounded by. That true life is not found by focusing on ourselves and our own needs, but only in the person of Jesus Christ. Revealed to us through the Holy Spirit today, alive that we may look to and know, know him. That if we make our lives about him, then we will truly know what life is. This is hard for us to believe. We have so much unlearning to do and unforming or deforming from the, the culture at large to try and get hold of this truth and live it out and believe it. And so it requires us to take an active step of faith and say, no, I choose to believe that this is true. I choose to live my life like this. Because if we can, the promise is true joy, regardless of what is going on in our lives, even in the most desperate chained up, afflicted circumstances, joy can be ours. The promise is freedom from our greatest fears, freedom from anxiety and mental trauma and emotional trauma as we look to him and increasingly make our life about him. And this is what Paul longed for the Philippian church to see. Where we started, he says, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He longs for them to see the progress of the gospel. And it's exactly the same word, actually, as advance in the first verse we read out in verse 12. And I don't think it's a coincidence he's using this first word again. He's calling back to where he started 
and saying, I want you to see the progress and the advance that I am seeing. I want you to see the city of Philippi changed through your small, powerless, weak church. That's what I long for for you. But how that happens is, as he says here, progress and joy in the faith. That I don't think it's not in the text, but I don't think it's too much of a leap to think that Paul saw the advance and the, the gospel going out from his life because it had made so much progress in his own heart. I mean, you just think of how he was with some of the imperial guard. You just imagine, surely it was his demeanor and how he found joy while all the other prisoners that they knew were losing their minds and terrified. And this man just seemed relaxed and joyful. That when the church saw him and saw how he was, they must have similarly just been set on fire by this man is different. This gospel must be different. Paul is constantly, as we see in this letter, showing the church this is what life is. Not just telling them, but look to me and imitate me. Let the gospel make progress in your life as it has in mine, and you will see all the progress that you long for. And so for us in the room that perhaps wouldn't quite be able to say, as Paul does, my whole life is about Christ. And if I was to die, that would be gain. Which I'm going to venture is everybody in this room. I think the question for us to ponder as we finish is how much more wonderful, beautiful, powerful as we sung must Christ be than we have currently experienced. That Paul is giving, given to us as an example. He's given to us as a window into what a truly Christ-filled, Christ-centered, Christ-rich life really looks like. And in chapter 3, we'll explore a lot more of what does it actually look like for us to leave everything else behind and follow him. But as we finish, I just want us to reflect on how, much, how truly worthy must Christ be if he is all of life. If this is how Paul talks of him, that to live is Christ. This one man in him is found all I need. How much more of him is there for us to discover? Can we have the band up just for a little bit of music? We won't sing a song, but it'd be good just to have a little bit of music to help us respond. We'll close in just a moment. Pizza will be served. But before we do, I just want to invite you to close your eyes. And just have a moment before God where we look to Christ. If we could just have a few chords and a few bits of strumming,